I, um, I'm a person who constantly does things that I should not do, or I constantly don't do things that I should do. Maybe I'm the only one in the room that does that, but there's constantly things that I don't do. Are you one of those? So, you, um, so here's some things that I constantly don't do when I should do it. Um, I know that I should floss every day. I know it. My dentist tells me every time I go. I feel bad. It's like a horror show when I go to the dentist. I'm just bleeding everywhere. My gums are terrible. Um, I sleep with my mouth wide open, so that doesn't help. I'm a mouth breather. My wife hates it, um, and I don't floss. So one of the things that would work if, is if I floss more regularly. But here's the thing. I hate flossing. It's terrible. It's just a whole nother process. And I, I, mean, I have been practicing my whole life not flossing, and it's hard to now get into it. I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. Um, I know that I should eat healthier, but here's the problem with eating healthy. Bad food tastes so good, right? I would take the worst pizza over the best salad any day, okay? I love wings and pizza and more grease the better. Like some of you eat pizza and you get the grease off. I want more grease on it. More grease is more taste for me. I know what I should do. I know I should eat healthier because I'm getting a little older. I'm going to be 35 next week. I'm getting older, so I know that now there's some aches and pains just from living at this point that if I eat healthier, it'd be good for me. I know what I ought to do, but I don't always do it. Um, I know that I should check in with my wife before I pick up food for myself. I know I should do it, but there are times where I'm out to lunch, or maybe I have a lunch meeting, or maybe I'm just driving and I'm really hungry and a McDonald's is, is right there, or maybe um, I, I, I see something and I'm like, I'm just going to pick this up for dinner. I know I should check in before I do it. I know it. I know I should. But there are times where I see McDonald's and my wife doesn't come into my head once and I just get my McDonald's, I come home, and she's like, you didn't think I would want some? You didn't think you could ask me? I'm like, oh yeah. She always asks me, and a lot of times I forget. I know what I ought to do, but I don't always do it. I know that I should enjoy my kids' company. I know I should. I am so lucky to have them. They are a blessing, even though some of you saw it on um, Instagram this week. Um, even though my son Noah found a dry erase marker and drew on absolutely everything in his room, everything, his buttons, his body, <laughs> like, I'm sure he ate it because he had a marker line that went right to there, so I don't think he just drew that. I think he was, anyways, I know I should enjoy my kids' company. I am still lucky to have them. They are awesome kids. I know that I should, but there are times where the thing I want more than anything is to not be anywhere near my kids, <laughs> right? That just happens. I know what I ought to do, but I don't always do it. Not doing what you ought to do, it never feels good. When there's that thing that you know, oh man, I know I should do this. But when you don't do it, it doesn't feel good. Maybe at the end of the moment, like you know you should eat healthier, but you get that pizza, that pizza tastes delicious, right? But after a while, you're like, oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. I know I, I was supposed, I'm trying to eat healthier. I know what I should have done. It's not rewarding in the long run. It is easy to feel guilty about not doing what you ought to do. It's easy to feel discouraged. It's easy to feel like you messed up. And the opposite is true. When we know what we ought to do and we finally do it, it just feels great, doesn't it? Maybe not in the moment. Like maybe uh, you, you're trying to exercise more, so you go for a jog and you hate jogging. And every second of that jogging, like this is the worst. Or you go to the gym and you hate going to the gym. Maybe in the moment you don't like it, but when it's over, it feels great, right? You're like, man, that felt great because I knew what I ought to do and I accomplished something. I did something today. Maybe you, you do not enjoy eating healthy, but doesn't it feel great when your body starts to feel great? Doesn't it feel great when, like, you start sleeping? 
overslept. Now I'm sleeping and I'm eating healthier. Or you start to look a little better, like, man, look good, feel good. Like, it starts to feel better. You might not like it at the moment, but when you do what you ought to do, man, it can be so rewarding. We know that it's rewarding. And we know that it's better for us to do what we ought to do. That's why James, the half-brother Jesus, has some great brotherly advice. And here's what he tells us in, in chapter 4, and here's something you know. This is nothing new. This is nothing profound. It's something you already know. Here's what James tells us. What you ought to do is what you ought to do. Profound, right? What you ought to do is what you ought to do. James tells us that. James tells us that. If you know you ought to do it, then you should do it. If your doctor tells you that you ought to do it and you agree with your doctor, you ought to do it. Simple, right? Easy statement. If your spouse tells you you ought to do it, and deep down you know they're right, then you ought to do it. Simple, easy. And if God tells you something and, and calls you to something, and, and you can tell that God is speaking to you and moving you in a direction, you ought to do it. What you ought to do is what you ought to do. But James even takes it a step further in James chapter 4, verse 17. We'll be reading James chapter 4. And verse 17 is my favorite verse in James, and possibly one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Here's what he says. It's the last verse in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to your James chapter 4. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone who knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Hold on, James. Don't tell me what I, that I have to do it, okay? I know what I ought to do, but who are... This is America. I have the freedom to do what I want. Yeah, should I eat healthy? Sure. But if I want to eat pizza every single day, who are you to tell me that I can't eat pizza? If I don't want to wear my seatbelt, don't tell me what I ought to do. That's America. That's what I'm here. It's freedom. I, don't tell me what I ought to do, James. But James says, no, no, no. You have it wrong. If you know, you ought to do it. Maybe not someone else telling you. You know deep down, I ought to do this. If you know you ought to do it, and you decide, I'm not going to do it, it's more than just wrong. James goes a step further. He says, you're sinning when you don't do what you ought to do. And when, for me, that's not what I think about when I think of sin. When I think of the word sin, I think of lying, I think of stealing, I think of murder. I think of like the top 10 sins, right? I think of the times that I'm not, um, that I get too angry with my kids or my wife, go beyond that's a sin, or, or I'm not loving my neighbor. I, that's what I think of. That's what I normally think of sin. But James says, no, no, no. Yes, it is a sin when you don't resist the temptation that is in front of you. He talks about that in James chapter 1. Yes, it's a sin when you do not resist temptation. But it is also a sin when you resist the will of God. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Do you truly understand that? When God is calling you to do something, and you know you ought to do it, James says, when you don't do it, it's a sin. You're in the wrong. You ought to do what you ought to do. Um, I did not go to school to be a pastor. In fact, uh, like a lot of freshmen, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I, when I graduated high school. Um, so I went to CCBC in Catonsville because um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, I started as an accounting major until Accounting 102 started at 7 in the morning. And so I stopped being an accounting major. That's how quickly. It was one semester. I was like, I'm done. Not doing that. Because I, 
Counting's hard enough, let alone trying to learn it at seven in the morning. That should be illegal in colleges. So I remember I would go and I was like, I'm, can't, I'm done. I'm not an accountant. That's not my thing anymore, accounting. I'm not doing that. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went through um, my, I got my AA at CCBC. It took me three and a half years to do that for some reason. It took me a lot longer. Maybe because I changed some changed classes because they were too early. Maybe that showed the, how good of a student I was. And then I still had no clue what I wanted to do, so I went to the University of Baltimore because I figured, you know what, whatever I do is probably going to have something to do with business at some point, so I'll be a business management major. Still had no idea what I wanted to do. And this whole time while I was doing this, um, I was really involved in my youth group uh, when I was in high school. When I got out of high school, I remember seeing my youth pastor and seeing other leaders being like, man, that looks like an awesome job. Man, that would be, like, that's a dream job to just be able to go on trips and hang out with students and help students learn more about Jesus. Like, I remember thinking that, and it was kind of in the back of my head. And then my brother, who's two years younger than me, um, right out of high school decided he wanted to be going to ministry. So then at that point, if you're an older sibling, like, I was not copying my younger brother. There was no way I was doing that. There was a whole pride thing. I was like, I am not copying him. So I'm going to stick with this major that I don't want, and I'm going to stick doing this because I am not copying my younger brother. I'm not going to be behind him on that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I was a junior in college, years and years and years of feeling like God was calling me to go into ministry, years and years of it that I kept resisting, resisting, resisting. Until I was a junior in college, again, this is probably my sixth year in college because I went to college for seven years. Most of the time when you go to college for seven years, you're a doctor. Not me. I now got my nothing. I got my bachelor's. So I went, and I remember when I was a junior, I decided, you know what? I'm going to stop running away from what I know God's calling me to do, and I'm going to say yes. So I said yes, and I um, finished my college, college, and then I went to seminary, um, and then I eventually became a, a pastor. And for years, when I thought about that time between high school and when I finally said yes to what God was calling me to do, for times, I just assumed that was a time in my life where I was just searching. I was just trying to figure things out. I was just trying to figure it out. But later on, I realized that wasn't just a time of searching. For me, that was a time of rebellion. I was rebelling against what I knew God wanted me to do because I didn't want to copy my brother, because I didn't want certain things. I was rebelling against what God wanted me to do. What you ought to do is what you ought to do. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So when you do not do what you should do, James says that you are resisting the will of God. So if we should do, if we ought to do what we ought to do, then what should we do? We should answer that question. If we know we ought to do what we ought to do, and if we don't do it, it's a sin, what should we do? James makes it pretty clear. James says that we should be drawing closer to him. Let's go to the beginning of chapter four, starting in verse one. Here's what James says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You ever see um, a story of someone committing a terrible crime, like maybe someone murdered somebody or, or, or something like that, and you ever think, like, how does that person get there in life? There's a path that led them to that decision. What, what happened? How did they get there in that in, in their life. And James tells us that we are constantly fighting and we sin and we covet and we kill, we steal. And the reason why we do that is because we are trying to find fulfillment in something else other than him. So we do things to try to fulfill our lives, 
which results in sin. You lack something, so you steal because you think what you steal is going to fulfill a need in your life. That's why we do it. You are angry, and you think the only way to be fulfilled is payback, so you will harm somebody. You might kill somebody because you need to have payback. You want something and think it will fulfill you, and that thing will finally fulfill you, so you covet it. Every sin is because we are trying to fulfill our something, ourselves with something that is not him. And ultimately, what that is, is pride. It comes down to pride. Pride is saying, you know better. Pride is saying that I know the best thing for me. And, and what a sin is, God is saying, God, I am going to do blank because ultimately, I trust my desires more than I trust your direction. That's pride. God, I know what you're telling me to do. I know I shouldn't do this, but you don't understand my circumstances, so I'm going to do what I know is best, even though you are the God of the universe. That's pride. Pride says, I can fulfill my own happiness. I can make myself whole. I can do it all by myself. And every sin can be linked back to pride. C.S. Lewis says it this way, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. James continues in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You know, I don't know if you knew this, but you can pray incorrectly. Do you know that? You can do that. You can pray incorrectly. Now, I want to make something clear. Anything that you want to bring to God, you can bring to him. No matter how big or small it is, I was a student pastor for a long time, and, people, and I would, students would be like, I don't want to ask God about this test because there's like so many bigger things. Like, no, if it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to him. There's nothing my, my, daughter, my daughters or my son can say to me that's not a big deal to me. If it's a big deal to them, it's a big deal to me. And that's how God feels about you. You can bring anything to God. But if your prayers are about getting what you want over what he wants, it's best for you. If that's your, your prayers, then James would say you're praying with the wrong motive. So the question is, are you bringing your request to God with the idea of, God, here's my request, here's what I'm asking for, but ultimately, you know what's best, so not my will, but your will be done. Or are you bring your request with the idea that your requests are going to fulfill a hole in your life. See, God is not going to help you give you something that's going to replace him. That's not what he's going to help you do. The enemy will. He'll find stuff to replace God with, but God's not going to answer a request for you that's going to replace him in your life. James says, you're kind of acting like an adulterer. Here's what he says in continuing in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? See, you can have complete fulfillment in his presence. But for a lot of us, we spend so much time asking God to give us something to take his place instead of just being with him. Here's what it's kind of like. James says you're like an adulterer. So let me give you an analogy. Let's say that um, my wife and I, Erica and I, were um, having really bad, hard times in marriage. Like We were constantly fighting. We were constantly not doing well. Just It was just over and over and over. Just week after week, we were having trouble in our marriage. So I went to her and I said, Erica, um, I think I know what the problem is. I think I have a solution for our problem. The reason we don't feel connected is not because um, I'm putting my needs over you. That's not why. 
Um, it's not because I'm doing a terrible job of communicating. It's not because I'm not assuming the best in you. That's not why we're having marriage problems. I know why we're having marriage problems, because you don't fulfill me. So here's my solution. I'm going to go find someone else that's going to fulfill me. And when I find that person on the side, then we will finally be happy. Our marriage will finally be whole and complete. We will be able to be happy because I'll find my fulfillment in something else. And then we'll finally be able to be a great couple. You'd say, that's nuts. No one would ever do that. But yet for some of us, that's how we pray. That's how we pray. And James said, God is jealous for you. He yearns to have a relationship with you. Just like my wife wants me to be with her alone, and that shows love, like that's a good jealousy, that's, that's the same way that God looks at you. God doesn't want to compete with things that he made. He doesn't want to do that. He will nev- that will never leave you satisfied. Things that he knows are going to harm you in the long run. Things that he knows you're going to be left wanting more and more and more. He knows what can fulfill you. It's a relationship with him. So he doesn't want you to do anything else and, and ask for anything else because he knows what will fulfill you. He isn't going to help you hurt yourself by giving you things to replace him in your life. That's not what he's going to do. And James tells us that when we pursue earthly things, we become enemies to God. That sounds pretty rough, right? But here's in, in John chapter 14, Jesus said that he is not of this world, and he said that the world hates him and the disciples because they are not part of this world. We cannot have both God and the world. That doesn't mean that we have to um, live in a Christian bubble. It's not what that means. It means that the desires of this world are not going to leave us satisfied. So we should not be pursuing them because when we do that, we put God in a spot he's not supposed to be. We should live differently and act differently because we live, we are living for a different reason. But with all that being said, with all those things, calling people adulterers and doing all this stuff, look at what James says next. It's a very important verse, and we, all, we just sang about this. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. With everything we just said, even with all that, even with our pride, even with us constantly putting um, other things in front of him, even with that analogy that we do with God, even with all that, he constantly gives us more grace. Even though we are prideful and make it about us, he gives us more grace. Even though we put other things in front of God, he still gives us more grace and more grace. Even though we ask, to, ask God to fulfill our lives with other things, he gives us more grace. Even though we have rejected him with our actions, he gives us more grace. How much grace does he give you? More. Always more. More and more grace. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God gives you more grace. Not just grace, more grace. His grace never runs out for you. So if you want to receive that grace, what should we do? James tells us, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You ought to do what you ought to do. And James makes it pretty clear what we ought to do. Draw close to him and humbly submit ourselves to him. And by humbly submitting ourselves in front of him, we are going away from pride. The opposite of pride is humility. You go to God understanding our brokenness, understanding our need for him, saying, God, I know I missed the point. 
I know that I mess this up, and I know that you give me more and more grace. I just want to go to you and pursue you. I want you to be number one. I don't want to be satisfied in anything else but you. And I know some of you might hear that or at home might hear that and think, I'm not doing that. I'm not submitting. I'm not, that's not in my, in my forte. I'm not going to humbly submit to God. And we think that because we don't understand our actual state and we don't understand how amazing his grace is. See, it is a privilege that we are able to humbly submit to him. It's a privilege. It's not an obligation. It's not something you have to do. We are lucky that we are able to do it because our sin separated us from him. But because of more and more grace, we can submit our will to him, the God who knows what's best for us, the God that will finally fulfill us. We keep going after things in this world that never leave us fulfilled. God can fulfill us. And with that gap, he sent Jesus so that we can bridge that gap. We have the privilege, the privilege to submit to him. When you look at it as an obligation, you don't understand grace. It is a privilege that we're able to do that. We are called to submit to the sovereignty of God, as in the fact that God is in control, and the fact that it's about him first, and we're also called to submit to the will of God. The will of God is in what do you want in my life? What do you want me to do? What are you calling me to do? How are you calling me to live? See, God is calling you to draw closer to him, to be in his presence. And here's um, an illustration that I want to leave you with, and then, um, and then we're going to sing a closing song. You ought to do what you ought to do. We know that. What we ought to do is draw closer to him. So the question I have for you is, are you spending enough time with him? Are you drawing yourself closer to him? Are you actually submitting to him? Are you doing that? Are you being in his presence? Because I think for a lot of us, we keep thinking, well, I don't feel fulfilled by God, and we only give him a Sunday. Give him 60 minutes a week. I just don't feel fulfilled by him. I don't feel... Close, I, I don't feel that relationship. Let me, let, me, let me do some math really quick. Let's say you never, ever, ever miss a Sunday. Never. Never miss one. Every Sunday, you are there. That means you never go on vacation. That means you never get sick. Never means you're never hung over the night from the night before. That means that you're never uh, too lazy to get up. That means that you never just don't feel like coming. None of us would do that. I understand that. I'm not talking to any of us, right? People watching, not talking to you. We would never do that. But let's say every single Sunday, you never, ever, ever miss, ever. You're always there. But that's it. That's all you do. You don't read your Bible during the week. You don't pray. You don't spend time with God. You don't just spend quiet time with him. You don't, nothing else. It's just, I come on Sundays. I'm strict about coming on Sundays. I've always come on Sundays. I'm never not going to come on Sundays. I'm always here on Sundays. And here we, we do service about 60 minutes, sometimes a little less. 60 minutes. That's it. So 60 minutes every week, no matter what, you give God 60 minutes. So out of a week, there are 10,080 minutes, okay? Out of those 10,080 minutes, you give God 60 of them, okay? That's approximately 0.55% of your week is devoted to God. If you only come to church on Sunday, and that's all you do. You don't do anything else. Let's see what else we spend our time on. The average American spends 2,268 minutes per week on their phone. It's 22.5% of their time on their phone. Um, 1,666 minutes are spent watching TV. That's 16.5% uh, of our time during the week spent watching TV on average. Uh, when it comes to eating, we spend about 451 minutes on average, 451 and a half minutes per week 
uh, eating. That's 4.48% of our week. And then uh, men, we spend 145 minutes on the toilet. Women, you only spend 85 minutes a week on the toilet. Good job, because men are gross creatures. That's why. So men spend about 1.44% of their time on the toilet, where women spend about 0.84% of their time on the toilet. Let me ask you a question. During your week, if you gave your spouse 60 minutes of your time, how great would your relationship be? Terrible. What about your business? You gave your business 60 minutes of your time during the week. That's it. 60 minutes is what you get, and that's what I'm going to do. When, what about your sleep? You gave your sleep 60 minutes of your time. 60 minutes of my sleep, that's it. You would, you would have health problems. No, we, that would be terrible. And let's say you live to be 80 years old. It's the average lifespan, right? 80 years old. That means you live 29,200 days. And if all you did is you went to church on Sunday, that's it. Out of this 29,000 days, 173 days would have been spent with God, while 419 days would have been spent on the toilet. The toilet time would have tripled the amount of time that you spent with God. And then we think, I'm just not being fulfilled. I know why. The same reason you're not, you're not going to have a healthy marriage if you only spend 60 minutes a day on it, 60 minutes a week on it. We wonder why we have trouble finding fulfillment. For some of us, the idea of drawing closer to God just seems too hard because we spend almost all of our time trying to get what we want. We spend almost all of our time on ourselves. So the idea of submitting is hard. I can't submit. I'm spending all this time on me. If anyone then knows what they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It is a sin for them. You ought to do what you ought to do. And I don't know what that means for you. We have a lot of different people watching. We have a lot of different people here. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe it means that God has been calling you to do something in your life, and you've been resisting. I don't want to do that. I'm not sure about that. You ought to do what you ought to do. If you know what you ought to do, when you don't do it, James says, that's a sin because you're resisting the will of God. Maybe for some of you, it's as simple as submitting your time and humbly going to God in your time. I'm glad you come here. I'm glad you're watching. But if that's it, your relationship's only going to be so good. Think about what your relationship would be in every other aspect if you only gave it one morning. So maybe what you ought to do is find those spiritual disciplines that you can start implementing now so that you can draw closer to Him, so you can humbly submit to Him because you know what you ought to do. I'm not here to tell you what you ought to do. You know it. You can feel it right now. What I'm here to tell you is, you ought to do what you ought to do. Anyone that knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. What ought you do? What should you do? Will you do it? Because here's the good news. You're able to do it because of the grace God has given you. The more grace he has given you. So here's how I want to close. I'm going to ask, you, ask the worship team to start handling up here. Uh, 
we're going to close a little differently than we normally do, but um, I think that there is something to um, our posture. I think that when we do things, I and mean, we, we kind of know this in a lot of other things, but if our posture kind of tells us and does things. So um, I think for a lot of us, we just never submit. We never spend time quietly, humbly drawing ourselves to God, trying to be quiet and submitting to Him. So here's what I want to ask you. Rich team's not going to play right away, but eventually they're going to start playing. And all I'm going to invite you to do, and I'm going to do it with you, and if you're at home, I want to encourage you to do this as well, is to take this time to humbly submit and ask God what you ought to do. And, and here's what I want to ask you to do. If you can do it, I know some of us can't, I want to ask you to, to get on your knees and do it. Because I do think there's something about that. That's a surrender posture of us on our knees. That's why we lift our hands. That's surrendering. That's when God, it's not about me anymore. And what better posture to show God that we are submitting to him than on our knees and God, it's all about you. You're my number one. So if you can do it, I want to encourage you at home and right here to do that. Some of you, I know if you, if you can, if you have bad knees, then don't worry about it. But I want to take this time for you to, to ask God, what should I do? What is it that you're calling me to do? Because we know that what we ought to do is what we ought to do. And if we don't do it, it's a sin. So take this time to say, God, I'm drawing close to you, and I'm praying that you lead me in the next steps. So I want you to take this time to surrender, to humbly submit yourself, to draw closer to him, then the worst team will play.